So, for those of y'all who missed one of the most exciting college football games of the weekend, there was a $55 paywall on the Army at Oklahoma game, which turned out to be quite the thriller, (laughs) went into overtime. So, just to introduce everybody, I'll start off, Andrew, do you feel like a $55 paywall is something you would pay for for a good college football game? No. (laughs) No circumstance in which you would do that. I'm fairly anti-pay-per-view in general. I feel like I'm already having sold my soul, my firstborn child, and my left big toe to the cable company as it is. Fair enough. So, Tommy, just so you know, this is kind of one of those policies that the Big 12 deals with because of the Longhorn Network, where each each team gets a one game where they have to put it, kind of handle it themselves. In this case, Oklahoma put it on pay-per-view. Would you, uh, how would you change that policy, personally? I'd leave the Big 12. <laughs> I mean, really, the Oklahoma should probably do that anyway. Uh I mean, to be perfectly fair, if they're selling enough uh, single games at $55 a user and enough people are doing that, just go on your own and go independent. I'm sure you'll make plenty of money. I, I think the thing about it is, is there are different levels of grants of rights, and I think that game falls under like the third level, and that's the only level that they can negotiate themselves, whereas most other conferences have those negotiated as part of the big contract. Hmm. Yeah, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, and TCU should leave, join Notre Dame, and form their own mini-conference. I'd be down with that. I'd also be fine with them joining, splitting up and dividing amongst the Pac-12, Big Ten, and SEC. But that, maybe that's just me. I don't know. But I'm, I appreciate your input, Artem. Uh, I'm glad to see that you're not too preoccupied to talk with us and put your daughter to bed at the same time. <laughs> you got it. All right. Well, as I pointed out, the uh, Oklahoma Army game was an exciting one this weekend, but uh, we had a plenty of, I guess you would call them upsets. It wasn't as detrimental as I think people make them out to be, but Andrew, I did hear the term coastal dumpster fire thrown around from you this week after what we saw out of Louisville, FSU, and especially after a very disappointing Uh, Virginia Tech game on the road against Old Dominion. So I guess I want to turn it over to you and hear your thoughts since you're our our quote-unquote ACC expert. Is there a real logic behind some of these losses? I know a lot of these teams are dealing with players that are injured, players are getting penalized, new coaches. Would you say there is some logic here, or is it just that uh, the conference is not off to a good start? It's a mixture of all of the above, really, when you look at it. The craziest one to me is the Virginia Tech game. Louisville losing to Virginia isn't, to me, as big of a deal because, you know, we like to think Virginia is a better team this year than they have been in the past. Notre Dame blowing out Wake Forest. It's Wake Forest. You expect them to win seven, eight games and be plucky. You know, Miami won big. The bigger one, Boston College has lost to Purdue. Really kind of makes you scratch your head. Everyone was really high on the Boston College train, and Purdue was winless. And then the other biggest one is the in-state game where 
0-2 North Carolina, who had gone in to East Carolina and lost to East Carolina's even worse, beat a Pittsburgh team that Pitt fans thought were going to be on the up and up. What? <laughs> yeah, that is by far the most confusing game I've seen all season, which is weird because the Old Dominion game also happened. But I guess at least uh, that is such... After how UNC has started off the season, I really wasn't expecting them to compete at all. Every now and then you get those weird upsets like with Old Dominion and everybody and Virginia Tech, especially when you've got an injured secondary, an injured quarterback. You know, we saw what happened with Clemson last year. But UNC, I feel like, really came out of nowhere after Pitt had really started to get things going is what it felt like. So the craziest part, the Virginia Tech game, the craziest part to me is that game at one time was 28-28. to 28. And Old Dominion scored 28 points in the fourth quarter. <laughs> that was Old Dominion's first win, by the way, too, just to, to point that out. With their backup quarterback as the starter, their starting quarterback got hurt. So they ended up having to play the backups. Which brings also brings in another side note that I couldn't wrap my head around once I figured out it had happened. Old Dominion was playing at home. I was like, what yes. What compels Virginia Tech to play these teams on the road? Because I think a similar situation happened against ECU a while ago. And I, I will say, it seems like a lot of Virginia Tech fans are showing up because ODU rushed the field after the game, and I think there were only like 40 actual ODU fans in the stands that rushed the field. Um, so I'm like, most of that had to be Virginia Tech fans, but it was still mind-blowing. I can't speak for the why they played at East Carolina. That one still doesn't make sense to me. But the reason they played at Old Dominion is because Old Dominion is in the 757 area code um, in coastal Virginia down in Norfolk and Newport News and that area. And there is a ton of high school talent that comes out of that area. Oh, so this was a recruiting rush for them. It was. It was a chance for them to to get a chance to play there, to be in there. You know, I mean, guys. You know, I'm just I'm just looking at you know football players out of Newport, out of Hampton Roads, Virginia. Dre Bly, Elton Brown, um, Marquise Hagens at Virginia, EJ Manuel. You know, Bruce Smith in the Hall of Fame, Dwight Stevenson in the Hall of Fame, Mike Tomlin's from that area, the Vic brothers. Well, I will say this is a great recruiting chance for Old Dominion in this case because they, they that just turned their whole season around. If, if Old Dominion could ever get to the point where, kind of like the old Miami teams, they would be able to kind of put a fence around that area and and dominate it, I think. Well, back to the conference itself. Tommy, I want to give you a chance to talk about it. I know technically you're a Pac-12 guy, but you're also Georgia Tech. You're familiar with the area. Is this kind of a systematic of what the Pac-12 has going on, where the ACC is beating itself? Should, should we be worried about perspective or – do you think that just comes down to how the ACC is going to end up doing in the bowl season? Because right now this is not a great way. This past week is probably a worse look overall for the ACC than any of the other conferences, given how things played out. 
Well, there's a couple things you can kind of consider when you're looking at this. The first is that we're not even a third of the way through the season yet. Uh, so typically teams get better as the season goes along. That's just how it works. As more practice gets in, freshmen get more experience, sophomores get more experience, new starters get more experience, more reps, more chances to solidify. New coaches can kind of settle in a little bit more, uh, become more familiar with their players, their talents, their strengths, weaknesses. Uh, Teams in general can kind of figure out some of the the sideline management, stuff like that. So overall, everybody's going to get better as the season goes on. The question is who can do it fastest or most efficiently that's not already out of the gates at the top. You know, Alabama, Clemson, Notre Dame, those type of teams right now that are already performing fairly well. They obviously still need to get better before the season ends, but not as much as some of those teams like the entire Coastal, which right now is just a bunch of teams that are not executing well. A lot of it's poor coaching decisions. I mean, I watched a little bit of the Pitt-UNC game uh, on replay earlier this week, and honestly, it was a lot of that was bad coaching. Just play calls that didn't make sense, trying to force a offensive scheme that just wasn't working that the other team had already planned for and were selling out to defend. So I wouldn't worry about it yet. Uh, but as the end of the season arrives, if this is a repeat thing where teams are getting beat when they shouldn't be, that's when you can start throwing dumpster fire at the entire division. So I guess really quick, Andrew, I do want to give you a chance to finish up uh, the topic at hand. Who do you got coming out of this division right now? Because, I mean, you're looking at it. Georgia Tech is uh, is still a possibility. I don't think any of us are picking them. But, you know, you got Duke, you got Miami, you got Virginia Tech. Technically hasn't lost in conference yet, just had a really ugly look last week. So anybody's division, really, still. Uh, So who would you pick at this moment out of the uh, Coastal? I think it's still Miami. Their loss is to a really good LSU team, and I'm just not sold on Duke, and maybe it's because I still have visions of old Duke, Um, but they're still fighting with quarterbacks. The backup's playing. They lost some – I mean, they're good defensively, but their best defender is out, and Miami's really shown me the most that – Talent-wise, everything-wise, they're kind of bringing it together. They started Nikosi Perry last week, and I think he's probably going to be the starter going forward. He's a better athlete and maybe a better quarterback than Rozier. And they just have the most talent. That's really, I think, where it comes down. Now, you could pick the next two through seven as to where people are going to finish because I don't think anyone else stands out that much. Virginia Tech's down a starting quarterback. Georgia Tech's looked like a dumpster fire. North Carolina looked like a dumpster fire. Uh, you know, until we realized that Nathan Elliott hates Pitts- Pittsburgh more than any- he hates anything else on the planet. <laughs> North Carolina, I saw somewhere they're 
two and twelve against P five programs in the last two years, and both of those wins are against Pittsburgh. Well, at least that's a good sign for us later on this year. All right. The, the, the dark horse to me is Virginia. If they go in and beat NC State this weekend, then they're a team that I think we really should start paying attention to. That should be a fun matchup to watch. All right. All right. With that in mind, I'm going to go on and move on to the next topic. For the moment, uh, Tommy, kind of a similar deal we got going on in the Pac-12. It's it's really looking like it's going to be Stanford and Washington going down the line. Uh, they both won their matches last week, but in pretty much the exact opposite fashion, oddly enough. Washington kind of kept Arizona State at arm's length and just kind of rode out the game, keeping it very close. And Stanford had one of the most ridiculous finishes to a game I have ever seen with them scoring something like 28 points in around four or five minutes. So that was just a psychotic ending to a matchup. Obviously, both these teams are very similar, very defense-oriented, not huge on scoring. Bryce Love hasn't kicked off the way we thought they he would. The weapons on Washington's offense have not really been as efficient as they were the past few years, possibly because their loss at wide receiver. So we're looking at a big we're looking at a big kind of stagnation there in the Pac-12 with these two teams. Where do things stand out west for you going into the next week where Stanford has a big chance to make a statement against Notre Dame? Um, I think the Notre Dame game will tell us a lot about both of those teams. Um, in your notes, you specifically called out Bryce Love kind of underperforming where everybody thought he would be this year, which I think is a fair criticism. If you look at their opening game against uh, San Diego State, uh, it's pretty clear why his numbers are down, uh, not to mention he was injured uh, two weeks ago. So that kind of explains some of that. The other piece of it is if you look at their their passing versus running uh, split of plays, like their play calls from last year, they basically 56 to 57% of the time were trying to run the ball. So more often than not, they were trying to run the ball. 6% does seem a little small, but that's a pretty large difference over the course of the season. You're talking about a hundred more rushing plays over passing plays. Yet this year, they're straight at 50-50. They've run about 115 to 116 pass plays to run plays. So they're not really doing what they want to do on offense from a scheme, from a strategy perspective. But part of that comes from the way teams are lining up up against Bryce Love. And if you watch the San Diego State film... They literally are putting man-to-man on the receivers and loading up the box so that he can't run. So, of course, he's not going to get yards. The problem there is if you can start passing the ball, he'll have really great success. If you can't pass the ball, then I think you'll see teams, and I think you might see this with Notre Dame, they're going to start putting their, their backs on islands against the receivers and basically daring Stanford to make a play. If Stanford can complete a couple big plays in one-on-one coverage, 
you'll see him start dropping the safeties or linebackers to give extra coverage, and then Bryce Love will get his yards. I, I think the passing game is kind of going to be the key to them moving forward, though, because they do have such an electric running back, and teams are scheming against it, and they don't have necessarily these all-pro, future all-pro wide receivers that they can kind of lean on. At the other end of the deal, I think Washington has still got to be the favorite. I mean, their one loss was to a very good Auburn game, and I said this in the beginning, that both teams look to be in very good form at that point. I I think Washington is probably going to win the Pac-12. I don't think anybody from the South can beat Stanford or Washington in a title game. So it really comes down to those two teams. Yeah, and then obviously we've got USC coming out of the South as probably the likely candidate, possibly Utah. But I think it's fair to say, given the way things are looking, after Oregon lost that game in a very ridiculous fashion, uh, it, it's it's hard to see anybody else challenging uh, Washington or Stanford the way the standings are turning out right now. But uh, Artem... I want to give it you a chance to talk since you haven't had the uh, moment to do so yet. What what else is standing out to you about the Pac-12 this year? I mean, obviously, it's another conference where you've got the guys that are standing at the top, but everything below is kind of muddled. Obviously, USC really struggled against Texas, kind of made a bounce back against Washington State last week, which is a little surprising. Arizona State was firm for Herm, and then since have gone zero and two. You know what? What teams are standing out to you that kind of define the Pac-12 this year? Honestly, watching Oregon kind of clued me in of how good they're going to be this year. I really think they still have a chance to to pull it out and make the championship game. That's that would be my my choice for the top school. I know Stanford and. Um, USC or some of the in Washington are the the top three schools everybody's looking at, but I think Oregon had the dogs in the fight to beat Stanford. They just got out of what they're comfortable with doing. In that third quarter, if you watch the game, they were up twenty four to seven, and then all of a sudden they started doing stupid stuff and uh, made some mistakes that brought Stanford back. So and kind of never got the chance to go back to the momentum they had. So I would look for Oregon in that division to to improve over the next couple of weeks. Kind of like Tommy said, teams improve throughout the season. I think Oregon has what it takes. Uh, we'll just see how they hold out for the rest of the season because I don't I don't know if you can take two losses and uh, went out there. So obviously they'll have to beat Washington to do that. They're already kind of out of control of their own destiny. But so, but that is a possibility. It would be in, it's certainly exciting, make things more exciting out west right now. Andrew, really quick, I want to get an answer from you. You're familiar with what the locker room is like, and you're familiar with, as you we've talked about recently, seeing miscues in the personnel and on the field. How how do you get people hyped up for the next game after losing like that in such a dramatic fashion? Again, talking about Oregon giving up those 28 points right at the end uh, to lose to Stanford, a team that they played better than the rest of the game. How do you how do you handle that uh, talking to your players? It's it's a tough situation. The thing you don't want to run into is you don't want to let one loss cost you two. You really gotta get them focused. You gotta you know we always talked about you get one night 
to mourn, and then it's on to the next week. You get Saturday night to be sad, to be mopey, to lament it, and then Sunday morning, that's in the back window, you're on to the next game. You know, that's easier to do as a coaching staff. With players, you just got to keep them focused. You got to keep them, you know, into what they're doing. I think one of the biggest times that I ever ran into this was in 2012, where Georgia Tech played just a crazy game with Miami. We were losing by 19 points, and then we were up by 19 points. And then, you know, we lost in overtime with a gut punch. And the very next week, we came out real flat and lost to Middle Tennessee. And that's definitely a game where. I mean, we lost to Middle Tennessee for a lot of reasons, but it's easily one that you can point to and say the emotions of one game cost us two. And you got to hope, too, that your players have some level of mental toughness. You, know, you have to have guys that understand, okay, yeah, we came out, we fought, and we came up short. But you know, the next week's the next week, and we've got another chance to put a good game on tape to come out and show that we're, we're a good program. Fair enough. I mean, I, I hope to see Oregon do that because it's certainly a lot more exciting when the Ducks are in the race. All right, Artem, I'm going to go back to you. So obviously we're going to find out a lot about the Big 12 and the Big 10 this week after we got a couple of big matchups. But last week we learned a lot about the SEC that I don't think we knew. There was an unexpected loss by Mississippi State. <laughs> obviously... They don't shop at Kroger very often because they looked very confused out there in Kroger Field. Uh, Mizzou kept it close. I think you you even made a comment about how the refs were kind of given a couple of calls George's way that really affected things. Florida trumped Tennessee, which really showed us that Florida, combined with the Tennessee win, Florida's not that bad, and Tennessee really is. Um so we've learned a lot about the SEC East this week that we might not have known going into it. What what are your thoughts on the SEC right now, Artem? Is the East closer than we realized, or is UGA still going to run away with everything? UGA is definitely still the favorite in the East. Uh, you know, they're undefeated, even with kind of things not going their way and some plays not being made, some interceptions being thrown. Uh, their defense, their special team still kept them in the game against Mizzou, even though Mizzou did put, put up a good fight. And like you said, uh, I thought some of the calls that the refs gave them were more favorable for a kind of championship team in the sense that, oh, it's Georgia. They usually get the first down, so let's give it to them. Or uh, Mizzou had um, one ball taken away from them that definitely should have been whistled dead, but the refs kind of ignored mom- uh, progress and momentum and let Georgia rip the ball away and run in for a touchdown. It was plays like that that I think could have changed that game, but Georgia still come out of it, uh, came out of it with a win, and you know that's what we see in championship teams. Is it's they endure hardship, but in the end they still come out with wins. So I think Georgia is still pretty strong in the SEC East. I do, however, think Kentucky might be able to challenge them. Just looking at their schedules, um, Kentucky's got uh, South Carolina, Texas A&M, Vanderbilt, Mizzou, and then they face Georgia, whereas Georgia is playing LSU, Vandy, and Florida in that stretch. So uh, depending on how that October 27th game goes against Florida, which is a kind of a hated rivalry between those teams, um, you know, having had the, the two of them tossing for the, the title of the East for many years, um, it'll be interesting to see what happens in that Kentucky game the following week. Kentucky's definitely come out and been a surprise to everybody this, this season because it's not just their court, uh, running back. Um, Snell that's kind of doing his job. It's a lot of the defense, too. Uh, their defense has grown up, and 
stood up in, in tough contests so far and held Mississippi State to seven points. And I think the most they gave up was their beginning of the season game. So every game for the last four games, they've given up less and less points. Um, so we'll, we'll see kind of how both of these teams develop. Uh, I do, however, think a couple of the other teams might be out of the race just based on how the cards are playing out. Um, but I, I think uh, in the next couple of weeks, kind of like Tommy said, again, you know, some of these teams will improve and uh, we'll see who's truly fighting for that SEC East title. Um, I do think Georgia is a front runner, but it, the race is not, it's not uh, decided yet. So next couple of weeks could tell us a lot. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Tommy, I know you're not a huge Georgia fan, but I will turn to you. What do you think we can learn from the games we saw over the weekend, uh, from watching the Georgia game and the Kentucky game in particular? Uh, what, what do you think we can learn from some of these teams that are really fighting for the SEC East title? You know, I think Kentucky is really kind of setting themselves out and putting a challenge out there that, hey, you know, we're, we're someone to look at. Um, I think it'll be interesting to, to watch their season. Uh, their Georgia game will be very, very interesting to watch. Outside of that, uh, I mean, there's no one who can beat Georgia in the East. I mean, Florida and Tennessee, that game, I don't think we really learned anything. Besides the fact that Tennessee is very easy to collapse, like as a team, they can completely collapse and upon themselves at any given game. I, I heard that I think they need to get some hormone therapy because they're suffering from some low T, you know? Does that sound about right? <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, on November 3rd, that weekend is actually going to be really, really good. Uh, we've got Kentucky playing Georgia. I think that's when you'll crown your East champion, essentially. At that point, I think uh, Kentucky only has one more East opponent, and Georgia also only has one more East opponent. So we'll pretty much have it figured out then. So that game could shape up if both teams are still undefeated in the conference heading into that week. That could be a really, really hyped up, interesting game to look. Now, granted, this far out, even ESPN saying that Georgia's got an 85% chance of winning, and I am inclined to agree with that. I don't think Kentucky has the workhorses to keep up with them. But it could be an interesting match, and if Kentucky continues to outperform their expectations, it could be an interesting game. I think it's also the crossover games because Georgia gets, obviously, Auburn and LSU uh, in their crossover matchups, whereas Kentucky, uh, luckily enough, I think they only have to deal with Mississippi State, who's obviously already come and gone, and then... They also have to go on the road to A&M. A&M is going to be the rough one, but we'll see how things turn out. So, I mean, if, if you look at it, and if we just assume that both those teams end up winning all their games in the East, and if Kentucky loses to A&M and Georgia loses to either Auburn or LSU, or 
even if Georgia beats both of those and Kentucky's only losses to A&M, that game still means the same. The winner goes to the wins the SEC East because they'll have the tiebreaker in the head-to-head. So I, I don't think the crossover games are as big of a deal as that November 3rd game as far as winning the division. Now, obviously, with Georgia, those crossover games are huge because they have higher aspirations and are definitely a playoff contender, and losing two games would not look good for them. But I think that November 3rd game is really the key to the East. All right. Well, now we know Tommy's thoughts. Andrew, you are by far our youngest, hippest, most internet-savvy uh, <laughs> uh, vo- voice on the podcast. So I want to turn to you for the meme uh, moment here. Snell has been putting out a lot of memes on Twitter. If you remember after he beat UF, he put out a picture of him wrestling a gator. After beating Mississippi State, he put out a picture of him carrying a bulldog, which was actually kind of scarily adorable. Um, (laughs) Do you think that Kentucky's memes are going to be able to carry them? Because we've seen them get off to hot starts before and then kind of collapse down the road. So do you think the memes are really making a difference here? I think the next two games will tell us whether this is Kentucky competing for the East or this is, oh, cute little Kentucky got off to a hot start, but they're still Kentucky. They play South Carolina and add A&M in the next two weeks. They win those two. I think we're probably ready to talk about Kentucky as a legitimate contender in the East. Yeah, that's a fair point. As for the memes, I mean, I probably got to go figure them out because I am way too old to be on the Internet. I'm starting to realize memes are born have their life and die before I find them like three months later and trying to figure out what the hell they meant. I'm still trying to figure out. So obviously I know what he's going to do with the rooster for the Gamecocks if he beats them. What the heck is he going to do with the Aggies? Like, Artem, is there like some – because an Aggie's just a rock, right? Is that – am I wrong? What is – what's an Aggie, Artem? It's a farmer? Yeah, I don't know like- what – What's he going to meme on a farmer about? I don't know how he could do that. Maybe he'll use Reveille, our mascot. Maybe he'll carry a woman in overalls. Yeah, maybe he'll do, like, a picture with him, like, doing the uh, old man farmer and the woman farmer with the pitchfork. Yeah, I think... Yeah, or, like, farmer's daughter type thing. Yeah. Farmer's only... He'll, he'll make a farmer's only account. That's what it says. Okay, yeah, that sounds like a plan. Either that or he'll get the dog. Oh, but I like Reveille. Everybody likes Reveille. I don't know. Fair to say, though, they can beat the Vols. All right. Well, I think that's going to wrap us up for our recap. Uh, enough of me making fun of memes. Uh, if you got any questions or comments, shoot us an email at tmlpodcast at gmail.com or check us out on Twitter at tmlpodcast. Uh, until next time, have a good rest of your week. Bye-bye.